Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is good to be with you another Tuesday evening, reflecting into church history through the lenses and prism of the great Christian thinkers. Today, this evening, we have the opportunity to take up one St. Polycarp of Smyrna, Bishop of Smyrna, a very unique man who did not write a whole lot, but certainly his testimony uh, is transcendent. And so we will talk about this man, and I will do so as I always do each and every Tuesday with John O'Hara. John, it is great to have you back for another week. Great to be back, Joe. Thank you. So St. Polycarp, John, Bishop of Smyrna. So we're, we're in these, uh, these figures that fall within this time period, John, that we call the Apostolic Fathers. Uh, they are what we call the Gospel's first echo. Uh, a few weeks ago, we talked about St. Clement of Rome. Last week, it was St. Ignatius of Antioch. This week, it is St. Polycarp of Smyrna. We call them the Apostolic Fathers because they have an immediate connection to the Apostles themselves. And I dare say that one uh, Polycarp of Smyrna, St. Polycarp of Smyrna, was the most connected man in the ancient church, right? He was a pupil of John the Evangelist. He was a peer of the man we talked about last week, St. Ignatius of Antioch. Uh, he was a bishop colleague, if you will. And his own prized pupil was one St. Irenaeus of Lyon, who, uh, in his own right, and we'll talk about him in, in several weeks, was a towering figure in so far as defending the faith. So, very important. In 110, when Ignatius of Antioch was on his way to Rome for his execution, he passed by Smyrna, and he and Polycarp met. Yes. And uh, so we have that nice connection. Yeah, and so with this... St. Polycarp of Smyrna, as I noted off the top, John, we have a man who, he didn't really write a whole lot, but he certainly, as being Bishop of Smyrna, did have a role in a church that's still very vibrant and active. Correct. Um, we do have his letter to the Philippians. That may very well be three letters. No one really knows. Yes. And he may have written others, but all we really know is that what we still have is a letter to the Philippians. And uh, act, by the way, he lived to be 86, I believe. Yes. Uh, and so did Ignatius of Antioch, to be pretty good. So apparently he was healthy to be a Christian, as long as you did not get martyred. Um, he went to Rome to visit with Pope Anticletus about an issue of when should Easter be celebrated. And uh, the Apostle John celebrated on the 14th day of the month of Nisan. Yes. And they celebrated both the crucifixion and the resurrection on the same day. And uh, the Pope thought, um, you know, we celebrate, it, uh, we celebrate the resurrection every Sunday. And so they discussed this. They didn't come to an agreement, but anyway, they went on. Mm -hmm. And uh, also, uh, he ran across some uh, 
some Donatists, some people who were who thought that Christ was not actually of the flesh. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, in one of his letters, he wrote uh, uh, saying that they were completely wrong. And could I read a little? You betcha. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, by the way, in his letter to the Philippians, he spoke glowingly of St. Paul. Yes. He, says, he just loves St. Paul. Here's one of the things he said kind of about the Donatists. Everyone who does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is an antichrist. Whoever does not confess the testimony of the cross is of the devil. And whoever perverts the sayings of the Lord for his own desires and says that there is neither resurrection nor judgment, such a one is the firstborn of Satan. Let us therefore leave the foolishness and false teaching of the crowd and turn back to the word which was delivered to us in the beginning. And if I could just say one more thing. Yes, he please. He quotes from the first letter of St. John. This is amazing because this is you know, maybe around 150, and yeah. he is familiar with the first letter of St. Mm-hmm. John. He, okay, we're taking a look. First letter of St. John, chapter 4, verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit which confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit which does not confess Jesus is not of God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, of which you heard that it was coming, and now it is in the world already. This shows the connection between John and his writing. He was an apostle of St. John. Yeah. So. And he's, here he is. And one of the things that these apostolic fathers have in common, John, is they are guardians of the faith, guardians of truth. And we really need to appreciate that. And so with this a heresy, docetism is, is what it is. Docetism, it comes from a Greek word that means an illusion. So it's a heresy that denies the humanity of Christ and kind of presented and taught the humanity of Christ as an illusion, Right, one of the the great themes among most heresies is an, either in a de- denial of the humanity of Christ or a denial of the divinity of Christ. Certainly, there was a denial here of Christ's humanity. Now, why is this so dangerous? Well, if you go into the New Testament and the Gospels, Paul's epistles, certainly Peter, First Peter four thirteen, he focuses in on the suffering of Christ. Well, if Christ's humanity was an illusion, then what do you do with his suffering? There is a concreteness to Christ's suffering. He condescends down into our earthly temporal reality so that he might vest himself with the flesh and share in our own flesh so that he might overcome it, redeem it, so that we might in turn share in his divinity to in any way, in any way, try to drain uh, the significance of the meaning of Christ's flesh is a, a huge heresy. And it's no wonder why uh, St. Polycarp of Smyrna was so outspoken in regards to uh, how he addressed um, the Marcionites and these other priests who were disobedient to the church and leading many people astray because he understood well, and we're going to get into his, his account of his, his martyrdom here in a bit, but he understood well the importance of the suffering Christ and how we, in turn, are called to share in that suffering. Uh, something we've talked about before on this evening, Tuesday evening, John. So, 
very, very important to emphasize that because it is just too important uh, of a teaching that comes to us uh, from uh, you know Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, all of them, to just kind of overlook this as something that is a non-issue. No, it was a very important issue. Docetism and other things keep coming up throughout these early centuries like weeds in the garden. Yes. And you have yes. to get put out. Yep. And it's some, and the church could not get together to because they were being persecuted. You can't have a big council in Rome to decide what the, it's amazing that they held together as well as they did it's from God. Mm-hmm. Together as well as they did. Well, and that really leads us I think to his account um John because we have noted it before um, as we've talked about some of these other figures that have died for the faith, you know, Tertullian's wonderful wor- words, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Yeah. And by that, what he's saying is, is those who have shed their blood have become profound instruments of unity. Christ, of course, par excellence, shows us what that looks like on the cross, that ultimately freedom must pass through death. Uh, unity must pass through blood. And so what Tertullian means to say is we can offer up all of the most eloquent proofs of the world, but in the end, the one lasting proof is to say no to everything so as to say yes to God, you know, and that's what Polycarp does. And, you know, I thought we would be well served this evening, John, to just read from some of this account, and it would be worth noting that uh, the anonymous report of this martyrdom, the account of Polycarp's martyrdom, launched a very famous literary genre called the Acts of the Martyrs, and really this was the first of its kind. And so what I thought we could do is just read from some of this. In the account, we have some profound lessons. According to Eusebius, about Feb- in February of 155, maybe 156, riot- <coughs> rioting broke out in this area between Christians and anti-Christians. I'm not sure what the, he doesn't say exactly what the issue was, but there was some disturbances going on, and Polycarp was here. Yes, yeah, yeah. And, you know, St. Polycarp was a very well-respected, widely respected, dignified man, um, that if there is one thing that you get a deep sense of, John, when you go into all of the history and you read about Polycarp, as much as we don't have a lot of uh, letters from him, there are a lot of witnesses to his life that have it's just kind of passed through the ages. And if there's one thing that just it, it just jumped off the page was the kind of overwhelming respect they had for this. Uh, this man's man, very big, tall uh, figure, bishop, who certainly just commanded respect. And um, it's important to note that because it seems to play itself out. You know, people would just kind of look at him and take a glance and who is this man? Certainly his presence of holiness, mm-hmm. um, but also his words. You know, he was an orator. He was very eloquent. People were drawn to him. So... <clears throat> The, the account starts with these words, The most admirable Polycarp, when he first heard that he was sought for, was not disturbed, but resolved to remain in the city. However, in deference to the wish of many, 
he was persuaded to leave. He departed, therefore, to a country house not far from the city. And the city, by the way, here is Smyrna, right? His pursuers then set out, along with horsemen, as if going out against a robber. About evening, they found him lying down in the upper room of a certain little house, from which he might have escaped. But he refused, saying, The will of God be done. So when he heard that they had arrived, he went down and spoke with them. And as those that were present marveled at his age and constancy, some of them said, Was so much effort made to capture such a venerable man? It's kind of what we were just talking about. I mean, the honor, a man of dignity. You just get the sense that in his presence, you were drawn to truth, where people are being made to ask new questions. I mean, was so much effort made to capture such a venerable man? That's striking. He didn't go out in the midst of these people and say, hey, martyr me. Yes. He did a normal thing. Okay, we're going to retire to this small house. They found him. And okay, the will of God, let it be done. Yes. So then, as the act of his martyrdom continues, his account goes on to talk about his request to pray with them, interestingly enough. Then it goes on, Now, as soon as he had ceased praying, they set him upon an ass and conducted him into the city. Does that sound familiar? Getting on a donkey and heading into yes. a city? I want to get here, I want to drop down here, John. Now, as Polycarp was entering into the stadium, there came to him a voice from heaven saying, Be strong and show thyself a man, Polycarp. No one saw who it was that spoke to him. But those of our brothers who were present heard the voice. And as he was brought forward, the tumult became great when they had heard that Polycarp was captured. Everyone knows who this man is, John. Yes. (laughs) You know, he's been captured. Well, who's been captured? Polycarp's been captured. I mean, if you were to take one man, you know, I know for a lot of our listening audience here in the United States of America, maybe a Billy Graham. You know, who's been captured? Billy Graham's been, it grabs your attention. Yes. You know, in, in the Catholic circles, you know, there's a number of popular figures, Father Mike Scanlon and others. If, if these men are captured, they grab our attention. Polycarp was a saintly man who everyone knew, and so everyone took notice. And then it goes on. The proconsul approached and asked him if he was Polycarp. On his confessing that he was, the proconsul tried to persuade him to deny Christ, saying, Have respect for your old age and swear by the fortune of Caesar. Repent and say, Away with the atheists. I mean, the irony in this. (laughs) Here you have the proconsul trying to persuade him, saying, Have respect for your old age. And of course, his no would have been... The opposite, right? <laughs> now, the word atheist, I assume, is the Christians believe in one God, and the Romans believe in a, a whole yes, yes. Able, I mean, a, a lot of gods. Oh, so, yes. So that, yes. therefore, the Christians are atheists. Yes, exactly. But Polycarp, gazing with a stern expression on all the crowd of the wicked heathen then in the stadium and waving his hand toward them, while with groans he looked up to heaven and said, Away with the atheists. Then the proconsul urged him, Swear, and I will set you at liberty. Reproach Christ. Polycarp declared, 
86 years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I now blaspheme my king and my savior? What strikes you here, John? Here he is, about to endure this most brutal death, and he's saying that Christ has not done done him any harm. I mean, think about that. I mean, how many of us cry over our little boo-boos? You know, how many of us cry when we stub our toes, let alone when we have something pretty tragic happen in our life? Here's a man who is saying, hey, 86 years have I lived, and our Lord and Savior has never done me any injury. He's never done me any harm. I think I heard when he was in the little house, he asked to pray for a while, and he saw that the people who were coming to get him had something to eat. Yes. He was praying. I mean, looking after your persecutors. Yeah, it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. Yeah, he he ordered them. Yeah, he the account says he ordered them uh, that something uh, be given to them by way of food and drink. I mean, it's <laughs> it's so striking that yeah. I mean, it's truly in persona Christi. I mean, he exactly. is another Christ. Uh, so striking, a vicarious Christi, we could call him. So I wanted to make sure we touched upon, too, this prayer here, uh, John, because this prayer is just the prayer for the ages here. <laughs> and this is, this is really in his last hour. He looked up to heaven and said, O Lord God Almighty, the Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, by whom we have received the knowledge of you, the God of angels and powers, and of every creature and of the whole race of the righteous who live before you. I give you thanks that you have counted me worthy of this day and this hour. And remember, he was hanging out with John, right? What was one of the great themes to the Gospel of John? His hour. Christ was constantly looking towards the cross, his death, his hour. He's been hanging out with John. He's been reading John. And here he is talking about his hour, just like our Lord did. And it continues. That I should be counted in the number of your martyrs, in the cup of your Christ. A very Johannine theme there once again, the cup of your Christ. To the resurrection of eternal life, both of soul and body, through the incorruption given by the Holy Spirit. Among them may I be accepted this day before you as a rich and acceptable sacrifice. Romans 12, verses 1 to 3. May I be a holy and acceptable sacrificial offering to you, Lord. I mean, here is a man. John, you talked about it earlier. He was going to John. He knows Paul. He's imbued with a deep sense of who Paul was, who John was, and it, it's like it just pours out from his very being that every other line that we read, he's quoting Scripture. It's like his martyrdom is, is an incarnation of Scripture. It's fascinating. So it goes on. Uh, let's see here. Among them may I be accepted this day before you as a rich and acceptable sacrifice, as you, the ever-truthful God, have foreordained, have revealed beforehand to me, and now have fulfilled. I praise you for all things. I bless you. I glorify you. And 
along with the everlasting heavenly Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, with him to you and the Holy Spirit, be glory now and forever. Amen. When he had pronounced this amen and so finished his prayer, those who were appointed for the purpose kindled the fire. And as the flame blazed forth in a great fury, we beheld a great miracle. For the fire, shaping itself into the form of an ark, like the sail of a ship when filled with wind, encircled the body of the martyr. And he appeared within not like flesh that is burnt, but like bread that is baked, or as gold and silver glowing in a furnace. And I love this part, John. Moreover, we smelled a sweet odor as if frankincense or some other precious spices had been smoking there. When I came across that, that reminded me of the three men in the furnace in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. And it did not uh, Mm -hmm. devour them. I mean, that Polycarp died. Yes. uh, I thought of that. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, well, and what I love about this, John is this is post-Scripture here, right? But it's as if he is bringing together in his martyrdom just not the New Testament, but the Old Testament. Truly, this kind of incarnation, or if we want to be technically theological, recapitulation of Christ and these stories in the Old Testament. And, you know, the most the best preaching we can do is to be an example mm-hmm. of the Word of God. Mm-hmm. And here is what one person wrote in this, uh, in this martyr- martyrology. Christ we worship as the Son of God, but the martyrs we love as disciples and imitators of the Lord, and rightly so, because of their unsurpassable devotion to their own king and teacher. With them, may we also become companions and fellow disciples. His example was powerful. Yeah. And his martyrdom was witnessed by a lot of people. Amen. In that stadium, yeah. Yeah. And just the this last piece here to the this act, uh, to this account rather, when those wicked men saw that his body could not be consumed by the fire, they commanded an executioner to go near and pierce him through with a dagger. This done, there came forth a dove and a great quantity of blood so that the fire was extinguished. And all the people wondered that there should be such a difference between the unbelievers and the elect, of whom this most admirable Polycarp was one, having in her own times been an apostolic and prophetic teacher and bishop of the Catholic Church that is in Smyrna. For every word that went out of his mouth either has been or shall yet be accomplished." Wow. Yeah. I mean, there is some powerful stuff. I mean, we have seen, not only in this case, but throughout all of church history, John, uh, these men and women who have laid down their lives, and we see and witness extraordinary things happen at the end of their life. We have talked a great deal on this radio program about one St. Maximilian Colby, who... uh, gave his life for another man in the concentration camp in Auschwitz. He went down in a starvation chamber. There were 10 of them who were down there. And there he was without bread and water for 14 days. 
for 14 days without bread and water. And finally, they took um, an injection of poison to his heart. Uh, But what we see here is when it comes to that last breath, John, when it comes to that last hour, that is when the wheat is separated from the chaff. That is when our faith is put through the fire and we are seen. We are seen for who we are. We are seen for who we are. I'm thinking of uh, St. Maximilian Kolbe spent time in Japan. This is World War II. He's in Japan before that broke out. Now he's in, dies in Nazi, under the Nazi Germans in Poland. But it, his entire life was an example. Mm-hmm. And when his, and who knows that he's going to be, he doesn't know he's going to become yeah. famous. He just yeah. knows that. He's going to give his yes. And here's the thing, John, and why I bring him up in light of Polycarp is, this is the first account of the act of martyrs, this martyrology. There were so many more after him. And John, you had made note before we were on air, there are so many martyrs today. I mean, some horrific, abhorrent crucifixions going on. I know there was a widely popular one that Pope Francis grieved uh, the loss of of a, a priest brother from Syria who died a, a horrible death. Pope Benedict, St. John Paul II, we can call him Saint now, both of them canonized so many saints, so many martyrs, that the 20th century, uh, the 20th century saw an age of martyrdom that was unique, uh, unlike any other, even the first few centuries. I mean, because you're talking about some of the horrific, horrific oppressions uh, that yeah. we have seen throughout the 20th century. And today, what's happened in China, what's happened in North Korea, what's happened in Syria, uh, what's happened in sectors of South America. I mean, it is extraordinary. What's happening in Africa. Everywhere you turn, people are dying for their faith. And it is important to talk about this because, again, there are a lot of things that we can say, John. There are a lot of things um, that we can account for. But in the end, it all points to our willingness to die for Christ. And certainly, we are called to die in all of those little things of our lives. And Jesus calls that the cross. And we need to pick up that cross. We need to embrace those little crosses so that we might indeed be ready to embrace the big cross. Martyr meets witness. Yes, that's right. Martyr meets witness. And really, that's uh, that can be the the soundbite to, <laughs> to uh, this evening's program, because that is what it is all about. Um, so I think that is a wrap, John, um, for not only our time on Polycarp, and man, could we spend so much more time on him, but also a wrap on the Apostolic Fathers. That being said, John, next week we will take up St. Justin, um, and his uh, two great works, his two apologies. Uh, there are a lot of fun stories that surround him. In fact, it may be two weeks that we talk about St. Justin. And uh, I think George is going to join us too next week. We'll kind of have uh, three in the studio here and see what that looks like. I think that would be a lot of fun. So we'll do that. All right, let us close in prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses 
as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.